Last Sunday was Announcement Sunday in United Methodist Churches in North Georgia. So last Sunday, all across North Georgia, there were pastors in their United Methodist Churches telling their congregations whether or not they were going to leave or stay. Let me tell you right off the bat, right now, um, all your pastors are staying. <laughs> so yay, that's good, yay. Yeah, that's right. So you are stuck with the following. You're stuck with Tom Davis. You're stuck with Melissa Consall. You're stuck with Jeff Ross. You're stuck with Michael Cromwell. You're stuck with me. And you are stuck with your youth director up there. I know, yeah. <laughs> I heard a cry, I heard cheers, I don't know. It's a great thing, we're all happy to be here, but it's a good thing for me to remind you that announcement Sundays do happen because as United Methodist pastors, we itinerate, we move. And the hierarchy of our church, the bishop and her superintendents, our cabinet, they meet every year and make those decisions. And so technically, I want to remind you that all of your pastors, just like all clergy of North Georgia and every United Methodist Church, we are only appointed to congregations for one year at a time. And so it's a really good reminder for us because we're reminded that we are not just connected to the person in the pulpit. We're connected to a much larger connection and structure and system in churches. It's a really good reminder, too, because the same thing happens every year. No matter how big the church, no matter how small the church, half the congregation is mad that the preacher is leaving or staying, and the other half is very happy that the preacher is leaving or staying. And that's what I've been thinking about this week, because after Announcement Sunday, it's a good reminder that the people, those preachers and those teachers, those pastors that we have loved so much, maybe the only reason we met that pastor is because they moved from another church. And I'm thinking about all those churches this week who are receiving someone new. This week is typically, the week after Announcement Sunday, is the week where you start to meet your new preacher. And the way those meetings usually go, they're in a room together, and the HR committee of the church, um, fancy name, SBRC, Staff Parish Relations Committee of the church, they arrange it so that the members of the leadership team can meet this new pastor, and they all go into a room, and they all start to mingle and visit. Of course, this year, it's a different world. I don't think those interviews are taking place quite the same way. I imagine all this happening on a Zoom meeting. So picture that with me if you have to meet a new pastor on your Zoom meeting. And the chair of the committee will name him Dennis. If there's a Dennis in the room or a Dennis watching or listening, you just may be the next chair of the SPRC. You're welcome. So Dennis sends out the Zoom link and everybody begins to pop on the Zoom to meet the new pastor in charge. And people begin to pop in. They're like, hey, can you hear me? Hello. And you know, there's always one person on the Zoom that never has it right. <laughs> They're like talking, but you can't hear them. So everybody's like, come on, Martha, you're, you're muted, hit the mute. After all that happens and everybody's like linked up together, 
Dennis, the chairperson, says, Oh, new pastor, we're so happy to have you. Tell us all about yourself. Where'd you go to school? What's your education? How long have you been a pastor? How many churches have you been a pastor of? And tell us, pastor, why are you going to be so good for Christians R Us United Methodist Church? I don't know if it's the real name or not. And the pastor says, oh, I have absolutely no experience. I have no skills, no experience, never pastored a church before, and I never even have education, never went to seminary. But don't worry, God told me I was supposed to be your pastor since I was a little kid, so no worries. Don't worry about it. When do I start? Can you imagine everybody on that Zoom meeting, they're like on the side message, side text going, what in the world was the bishop thinking? Who is this person? And I have no, no, absolutely not. What in the world? This person has nothing for us. We cannot have this. I just imagine like the franticness of that. And honestly, think about that as an interview for any position in life. Like, if you are interviewing a babysitter, a nanny, or an accountant, or I don't know, an airplane, um, airline pilot, <laughs> like appliance person, like anything in the world, a teacher. Is that really going to be the interview you want? Look, I got no experience. I've got no education. I've never done this before, but God told me I was going to do this. So when do I start? Job networking, that's an entire ministry that happens at our church. And the whole purpose of job networking is to help people find jobs. They meet every other week, have huge job fairs. They help people with resumes and interview skills. And I'm pretty sure that all the volunteers of job network will tell you that is not a good interview start. However, that's the exact interview, the exact call, the exact commission that one pastor told an entire group of people. And his name is Jeremiah. And his story is in the Old Testament. And we will read on our screens Jeremiah 1, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, oh, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am here with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the call, this is the interview, this is the commission of Jeremiah. And typically, there's a little bit of debate, but typically people can agree that this was the call and commission story of Jeremiah as caught between the years of 600 to 630 before common era, before the time of Christ. So it's a long time ago. 
And I really love this call story because it reminds me of the wonderful question that you ask every child. What do you want to be when you grow up? And so for fun, I'm going to ask you that. If you are under the age of 15 and you know what you want to be when you grow up, raise your hand. Okay. Okay. If you are over the age of 15, keep those hands up. If you are over the age of 15 and uh, you're still trying to figure out what you want to do when you grow up, raise your hand. Okay, tell me, what is it? What is it that you want to be or that you wanted to be? Tell me. A marine biologist, an astronaut, a teacher, an NBA player, veterinarian. That's a great one, too. A police officer. Good. I think, hear me say, I think you should be all those things. I think you should be a marine biologist and an astronaut, an NBA player, and a veterinarian. All those things are good, and police officers, you need to go be those things. But hear me say, you need to go and get skills. You need to be educated, and you need to get some experience to do it, because how fantastic would it be if you got to go on an interview and say, God told me I was going to do this when I was a little kid. And I've been preparing my entire life to do it. When I was just a child, when I was just a boy, when I was just a girl, God told me this is my call and this is my job. And so everything I've done in my entire life of school and education and skills, training and experience got me here to tell you I've known I was supposed to do it. So when do I start? That's not typically the way that story goes. Typically, when we know that there's a job for us or when God has a call for us on our lives, we don't typically run toward it as fast as we can. What do we typically do? Not a trick question. We run from it. We say no. Absolutely not. We hide and we run as far away as we can. And we take all these other wonderful, good, stable jobs while the whole time we're running. I think about this great image. It's from a classic movie, classic series called Harry Potter. Have you heard of it? Harry Potter. If you've never read it, maybe you've seen the first movie. In the magical world of Harry Potter, there are no male men and there are no male women. If you want to send a message to someone, what do you use? An owl. And it's so fancy because you put your letter, your package in the little claws of the owl, and the owl, like magic, goes and finds that person in the world and drops it off. The very first movie, it all starts with an owl because an owl shows up at Harry's house and throws this beautiful envelope right through a mail slot into the living room. And the mean uncle takes the envelope with Harry's name on it, opens it up, and throws the letter in the fire. He doesn't want Harry Potter to see the letter because it tells Harry Potter who he is and what he's supposed to do. Next day, another letter, another envelope. Mean uncle takes it, reads it, throws it in the fire. The next day, more owls, more envelopes, and the uncle gets rid of all of them, never to let Harry see them. 
And pretty soon, the owls are starting to circle. You remember? The owls circle the scene, and envelopes are swirling everywhere, and Harry's just trying to catch it, but the uncle won't let him see it because he's too afraid for Harry to know who he is and what he's supposed to do. And the uncle's so exasperated because even on Sundays, the owls don't stop coming. And the envelopes have made such a mess and such a mound that the mean uncle packs the whole family up, including Harry, and they go to some, like, deserted island with just some scary house where no one can find them ever. Of course, the first night they're there, somebody knocks on the door, and it's a mean-looking giant. What's his name? Y'all know this story. It's Hagrid, and he's really sweet, but no one knows that. And he has one envelope in his hand and he breaks down the door and he passes everybody else and goes straight to their one child named Harry. And he leans out an envelope and he says, this is for you. God's call is like that. God's commission is like that. The job you're supposed to do is just like that because it follows you. It's relentless and it won't let you go no matter where you are. And pretty soon an owl arrives, they start to circle, and you know that feeling and that tug of God calling you to do something more, and you're so afraid of God saying, this is for you. No matter who your pastor is. God called Moses and said, go free my people. And Moses said, I'm sorry, I'm tongue-tied, can't do it. God called Gideon and said, go help my people. And Gideon said, I'm sorry, I'm in the weakest tribe. I can't, I'm not strong enough. God called Ezekiel to be his prophet. And Ezekiel said, I'm sorry, I have nothing to say. The pattern's always the same. We hear God, we know God, but we give God all the reasons why God is wrong and no. God gave Moses three different signs of strength to show the Pharaoh. God gave Gideon a whole sign of strength, and God gave Ezekiel a whole scroll to eat, which is pretty amazing. You should read that story. What we fail to remember is that every time God calls us, God provides for us. Every time God calls us, God provides for us. There is a job for us to do. And whether we are new in our career or we're feeling stuck in our career or we're feeling like we've retired from our career, there is more that God is asking us to do. And Quite often, we're the only ones to do it. There's a great story about this little boy. And this little boy, he lived in the burn unit of a city hospital. And he was pretty bad. And everybody was really worried about him because he wasn't responding to any of the treatments. And he was getting worse and worse. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, there was a school teacher. And she loved being in her classroom with her children. She was a good teacher. But every day she went to work, she felt like there was something else she was supposed to be doing. There was this tug at her, this nag at her. And she ignored it. 
But one day she went to school and she just knew it was going to be her last time in the classroom. She said, I can't do it. I have to figure this out. And she felt that tug and that feeling the strongest when she drove by the hospital. And so one day the teacher pulled in and she walked in the hospital and she said, I'm here to volunteer. Do you have any kids that have been here a really long time? I can just help them with their schoolwork. And so they gave her a list of long-term illnesses of these children, the, the list of kids who had been there quite some time. And so she started with the number one, and she went down the list. She got to the name of the little boy in the burn unit, and she went over there, and as she was checking in with the nurse's station, she could kind of see in the side of her eye this child. And as soon as she saw the child, she said, no, I can't do that. And she left the burn unit and went to the next name on the list. And this happened a few days. She would see all the kids, but she would always skip the little boy in the burn unit. Again, that nag, that tug came back. And so she finally did it. She walked into the burn unit. And all that was separating her from this child was that curtain. You know that big fancy like medical curtain, right? And as she was standing there in front of the curtain, she was really scared. She thought, I have no idea what to say to this child. I don't even know where to look. She was nervous about where her eyes would go. And as she grabbed the curtain, there was something inside of her that just said, do not be afraid. And so before she lost faith, she grabbed the curtain and she threw it open. And immediately she looked at this child and said, hi, I'm your teacher. Your school sent me to teach you nouns and verbs. And she sat down and so began a lesson on nouns and verbs. The very next day, she came back to the burn unit. But before she could get to the fancy medical curtain, a nurse got right in front of her and said, what in the world did you do to that child? Well, her heart sunk. She's like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. And the nurse said, you don't understand. She said, within an hour of you leaving, he began to get better. For the first time since he's been here, he's responding to treatments, and it happened within the hour of you leaving. Whatever you did, do it again. After a completely full recovery, the little boy said, until the teacher came, I gave up. He said, but then it occurred to me, if my school would send me a teacher to learn English, then maybe they don't think I'm going to die. I better learn my nouns and adverbs. <laughs> there was a job for that teacher to do, and she was equipped to do it. There is a job for you to do, and you're equipped to do it. There is a job for this congregation to do, and this congregation is equipped to do it. I don't know the details. I don't know the nuances of your call or your job. But I know a portion of them on this Earth Day Sunday. Because ultimately, we're all called to the same thing, which is to tend to God's people. And so I read you this little bit of our job collectively this day at Chapel Roswell. We are to tend to God's people. 
We are to create environments that welcome hard conversations. We are to stop polluting the atmosphere with hateful words. We are to pick up those that have been thrown out. We are to weed out hate. We are to plant every color equally. And we are called to water it all so that it may all grow. So I ask you this. When do we start? Amen.